In cities across America, homelessness, poverty, crime, addiction, and mental illness are perennial and deeply intertwined problems. The New York City-based Doe Fund, however, has made real progress on these challenges. Emphasizing work and personal responsibility through its Ready, Willing, and Able program, which provides housing and educational and employment opportunities, in addition to advocating for racial and economic justice, the fund has served struggling and at-risk individuals for nearly 40 years. In this episode, Brent sits down with the Doe Fund's outgoing president and CEO, Harriet McDonald, and Jennifer Mitchell, its incoming leader. They discuss the fund's model and track record of success, offering valuable lessons for government, nonprofits, and individuals who aspire to support vulnerable populations. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Harriet Carr McDonald and Jennifer Mitchell, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Glad to be here. Thank you for having yeah, us. Yeah, it's great. I'm so glad that you all reached out. Uh, the Doe Fund is an organization that I've followed for many years, really admire the work um, that you all do, uh, share your passion for improving the employment outcomes for people with criminal records and other disadvantaged um populations and that's really what we're here about here to talk about today um, I, I think it would be helpful for our other uh, listeners who maybe haven't heard as much about the doe fund if we started there which is just to kind of um, give us a little bit of the history and a little bit of the sort of state of the organization it's its growth over time state what uh, state of the organization now and what it's looking at going into the future um my husband, George McDonald, who is recently deceased, um, started by feeding homeless people in Grand Central Terminal. And by the time I met him, he had done it for 700 nights in a row. I came from Hollywood, where I was hired to write a screenplay about a homeless girl in Grand Central. And she was a real person. I spent a week with her. I decided to adopt her and take her back to Beverly Hills and raise her with my daughter and I. About a month after I finished the first draft, oh, she hid from me. All the people were very invested in Grand Central, the homeless, and her going to Beverly Hills, you know. We all looked for her. She was living above a lower track in kind of a nest she had made for herself. And we looked everywhere. We couldn't find her. I thought the screenplay will save her. About a month later, I get a call. She killed herself. You can imagine how beyond devastating that was. This was a young, smart, but drug-addicted girl who I was going to adopt. It She was extraordinary. She was smart. Uh, it was just ghastly. So I came to her funeral. And 
a priest gave this very moving eulogy about how April was a shining star in the night sky. And afterwards, he invited me for a drink. I went with him. He started rubbing my leg, and I thought, all these things you keep about near that priest are true. But, of course, he wasn't a priest. He just gave the eulogy, and he was George McDonald. <laughs> so we really quickly decided to do this work together to help homeless people to start. And we literally picked 70 homeless men off the floor of Grand Central and started the program with them. We had no money, so I was the program director in Bed-Stuy at the height of the crack epidemic. These men were so wonderful to me. They were scared for me to take the subway to work to deep in Bed-Stuy, Gates Avenue, or to go home. And one of them picked me up and another one took me up. What I learned very quickly is how much the people wanted to enter the mainstream and work. We George and I are patriots, and we believe in the American way of people climbing the economic ladder, but you have to give them opportunity. We have always served an overwhelmingly minority community, because that's who's homeless. And what we realized was they embraced this opportunity so much. They worked past the hours they were supposed to work. We started by basically cleaning up empty uh, apartments where people were just put out by the city. And our guys who all had suffered from drug addiction, they found drugs and turned them into the city. We also believed in drug testing, and still do. I still do. That, Bobby, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's my dog. Um, And they willingly did that. Um, So I was immediately impressed with people's ability to regenerate their lives. Uh, We believe in hard work, personal responsibility, and being active fathers to your children. And of course, staying drug-free, getting educated, which we've done from early on, and learning skills. Because that's how you move up the economic ladder. We also concentrated on when people graduate in about a year or nine months to a year, we would help them get private sector jobs. We'd also help them get 
housing that they paid for. They came off all government subsidies because they were working members of the community, taxpayers, everything you want from a person. And I believe that that was very much in part due to our growing faith in them, the really beautiful environment we created, the fabulous meals, and we kept them busy all day into the early evening. So they went to work in the morning, they renovated these city-owned apartments or the non-union work, and then they came home and had classes and supper. So I think that was and is extremely helpful. People need to be busy when they're giving up drugs, when they haven't worked in a long time, if ever in some cases, of course. So this was really built on, I think, what all of us consider the American way. For a group of people who had not had opportunity. You know, all almost all of our men, their fathers were in prison, or they didn't know them. They had single moms, some of whom used drugs, and others of whom worked two or three jobs and had a bunch of kids, which you know is almost impossible. So that's what a Ready, Willing, and Able is based on. Personal responsibility, hard work, being a responsible father, and um, living a normal life so that when you go to the mailbox and you get bills, you're no different than your neighbor. He gets the same bill, or she does. And guys would even tell me after they graduated, they like playing their bill. So that built our, built our faith in the people and in the opportunity that we provided. Our success rate has always been good or very good. of our people don't return to prison even three years after they're employed. Um, So we cut recidivism enormously. And we always have. And you couldn't do more fulfilling work than seeing people rebuild their lives in every way that this society would want them to. So that's the history. Yeah, that's great history. Uh, I'm so glad to know. So this is basically in the mid to late 80s when you got started. Yes. Yeah. Late 80s. Yeah, Yeah, I remember those. Those were really bad days um, in in all of our cities. Um, So that was... uh, You came in on the ground floor of... uh, uh, we really of a did. recovery, you know, recovery that hadn't really started yet. Um, it hadn't started yeah, at all. Yeah. I mean, there were literally, 
thousands of people living in Grand Central. That's where I found April. That's where we picked 70 men off the floor. That's really just hard to imagine now, right? I mean, not that everything's perfect yes. in New York. Um, there's always challenges with 8 million people hanging around. Of course. Uh, but, yeah, imagining a 1,000 people at Grand Central just sort of camped out there, that it boggles the imagination. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious, um, and this is kind of a political or ideological question that I want to uh, throw at you and Jennifer. Um, you know, by, by putting work and personal responsibility and the importance of men as fathers at the center, you really uh, establish a very high expectation for uh, the population that you're trying to work with. Um, yes. And, and uh, you know, sort of the traditional um, human services mindset is that that's kind of unfair. Uh, that, um, you know, that we're, that when programs do this, they're kind of blaming the victim, you know, and, and you know, these, these folks are, um, they are uh, ca captured within all sorts of systems that they don't have any control over uh, and and are in their way and uh, lots of systemic problems. But uh, so how do you respond to that, that critique of, of that, your vision um, for how to go about helping the disadvantaged? I think that when people would come into the program, literally, and I was the director and everybody called me moms, even though I was younger at that time than them. And they couldn't look at me for the first couple of weeks, like in the face. And I realized over time that was shame. Mm. But after they got working and living in a good place and eating good meals and being respected, mm. it all changed. They were happy to look me in the face. And I don't think we should miss that. Human beings are human beings. And unless they're seriously mentally ill or seriously disabled so that they can't work, which is honestly, in my opinion, a very small part of the population. I think even people who are mentally ill but not as severely want to work and can work to the extent that they can with the right services. I think that the left is wrong in not recognizing the desire and potential of people. So I'm really, um, I'm curious, you, you talked about the importance of the respect that you, you give to your participants. How does that yes. manifest? They, they, they. It sounds like they obviously respect you, call you mom, uh, and I'm sure that they are similarly respectful with the rest of your team. But how does the? How do you and of your course. team sort of communicate respect back to them? Well, I think. Can I interject for a second, Harriet? Please. Hi, Brent. Of course. Um, 
So one of the things that um, we believe in the transformative power of work, we believe that work is dignity. Um, and when you were just talking about like kind of mutual respect, um, mm-hmm. something that's really important to note is that over 70% of the program staff that work here at the Doe Fund, so we have a staff yes. of about 500 people, over 70% of those who work in program are graduates of the program. Mm. So it's not um, people serving people who have not walked in similar shoes. Um, It's not people serving people who are so far from the problem or the experience. Um, And I think that's a really critical part of the No Fund's holistic model. Um, And one of the things that Harry was talking about this and you were asking about kind of having expectations, it was reminiscent of um, something that George McDonald Uh, the co-founder with Harriet always used to say, to love somebody is to expect something of them. And I think it's not, um, you know, we talk a lot about here, um, a hand up instead of a handout. Um, And we really believe that together, not like somebody giving something to somebody else, but together we can all lift each other up. Um, And, and, Together we can create opportunity and together we can be committed to continuous improvement. And so, um, you know, the foundations of the Doe Fund started with a partnership between George and Harriet and the men that they were meeting um, that said, what I'd really, thanks for the sandwich, but what I'd really like is a room and a job to pay for it. And so here we are, we have a nearly 40 year track record of doing this work. Um, And it's doing it in partnership um, with people who have been there and know those struggles intimately. And also know that more often than not, if given the opportunity and the supports that go along with that opportunity, um, the sky's the limit. Yes. And we've seen that over and over and over again. I mean, we've now served more than 30,000 people. And that's a lot of employed people, a lot of responsible fathers. One of the best times of the year for me is I get all of these photographs from guys with their child, boy or girl, graduating college. Mm. That is the way you break the cycle of intergenerational poverty and incarceration. Mm. And that's so important for America's future. This is a pretty simple model as a mom, and Jen's a mom, I can tell you. Having high expectations of your children, and now my grandchildren, really pays off. They want to achieve. But a lot of kids, obviously at the bottom, don't have opportunity, don't have the appropriate parenting, all of those things. But when our guys graduate, what I've noticed is how invested they are in their children's education. They know they've had such a hard time 
because they didn't really go to school. They didn't really concentrate. And they work hard with their children to do that. Yeah, I think that's a really important. Oh, those are all important points. I mean, it, when you're talking about the mutual respect thing, it's not enough. It's not enough just to love people, uh, although love is very, very important, right? Uh, to care about them, to want the best for them, they have to believe that they're lovable uh, and that they are they are worthy of what they are receiving from you in terms of your support, and your care. And uh, it's it is uh, that that's the other side of this equation that people don't just need to be loved. They need to be able to think of themselves. They need to respect themselves uh, enough to believe that they that they have earned that love um, and not, you know, you're not just mom because mo- all moms love their kids almost no matter what they do. Um, of course. Uh, but uh, expectations, like you said, are extremely important. Um, that's the fascinating, really fascinating stuff. Um, so, uh, maybe talk a little bit about, um, how people find their way into the Doe Fund. What's the, what's the typical pathway for, um, being part of the program and remaining part of the program? Okay. People get referred to us mostly from the shelter system. Um, Over the last year, I believe it is now, I participated with some advisors to the mayor on homelessness. There's five of us. And the first thing we've done, starting a year ago, was go out on the streets and engage with homeless people to get them off the streets. Because of substance abuse, and that's something we deal with a lot, they're afraid to leave the street because they won't be able to get high tomorrow. So, but we've been pretty successful Obviously, the five of us all know about homelessness, intimate knowledge of homeless people. And so I think we're good at it because we have a very experienced. Well, I, I, sorry, I'm just going for a second. So, yeah, so we do every, all the work we do in New York City. Um, you know, we run the Ready, Willing, and Able program in partnership with New York City Department of Homeless Services. So the Ready, Willing, and Able program runs out of our transitional housing residences. And so whether it's our recruitment staff who are going into other shelters um, or people working with Harriet and going out onto street teams or whether it's partnering with criminal justice agencies where people are being released on parole or probation but don't have a place to live, people are coming into our transitional housing facilities. Um, Some of them come in ready to join Ready, Willing, and Able. Others come in a little bit more skeptical. And so there's one month of orientation where people are in, in the facility, um, they are going to classes in the facility, they are doing work in the facility, um, they are 
getting to know us. We're getting to know them. They're getting to figure out if ready, willing, and able and the opportunity to work and get the holistic and supportive services that go around with work is what they're ready for at this point. Um, and after a month of that orientation, um, people get assigned um, to one of our supplemental sanitation service crews. And so we do these supplemental sanitation services um, all over. I think it's 115 miles of New York City streets. Um, we do goodwill routes um, where we are going there in neighborhoods that have supported us since the very beginning and maintaining um, their streets and, and, and keeping them clean. And then we also have contracts with business improvement districts across the city um, where we're keeping um, their the, those areas um, clean by providing these supplemental sanitation services. And, ha and as Harriet talked about earlier, so these men that are participating on our program, they are assigned to one of these crews. They are working 30 hours a week at one of these crews, um, and then they are coming back to the facilities and they are taking um, digital literacy classes. They are taking career success strategy classes. They're getting themselves prepared for what comes ne come next. So it's a balance of, of doing this work, this transitional employment, um, while at the same time getting the essential skills to build their resume and build their readiness to go out into that permanent full-time employment. Um, and so then after a certain point in the program, they have an opportunity to think about, okay, do I start getting ready to go on job search? Do I start pursuing my education? Do I start taking advantage of some of the more advanced training opportunities that the Doe Fund offers or that some of our partners offer? And so over the course, you know, when Harriet and George started this and, and they were providing this, this job opportunity and this, these wraparound services, people could go out then and get a job. Um, what happens now is there's really a, a, a need for um, different and more specialized skill sets um, and sector-based training strategies. And so we've been building those up in, as part of our portfolio. Um, and so some folks still do finish their time in our supplemental sanitation crews and then go on job search and get a job, while others you know, get to a certain time and then they start participating in our culinary training program or our welding training program, or they work at our, in with our security folks or our building maintenance folks. And so there's, there's lots of opportunities. And what we really pride ourselves on is making sure that everyone knows that um, they have an opportunity to figure out kind of what their career trajectory looks like um, and that we will support them in figuring that out. So I'm curious, um, you, you talk about, you know, you've got a lot of people coming in. Some of those people uh, have uh, a demonstrated uh, change of life or a, an interest in the opportunities. Some people are more skeptical. What's the um, first two, the two questions here? And the first one is um, uh, how many um, are in each of those buckets, do you think? Um, uh, you may not track that in any precise way, but how many people, I guess, do you think don't pass that first gate? Well, it's... In my experience, not many. Most people, and that's why this has been so fulfilling to me, 
the majority of people want to do this. Even though it means giving up drugs and we monitoring it constantly that they are, even though it's hard work in the winter when they have to shovel snow, even when it's boiling hot during the day in summer, they're motivated. And what I would say is, like, because we um, we are so in tune with kind of what what how folks are feeling, there's a lot of people that um, come through and and join right away, and then there's a lot of people that come through and are a little bit skeptical, but then they see other people in the facility participating right. in that way. And, and, and they are like, Hey, let me give that a try. Um, but these, the, the reality is these paths aren't linear. There are folks that start the program and then have a setback. There's folks that go all the way through the program and then have a setback. And one of the, I think, unique and special things about the Dauphin model is like, we are here to provide that opportunity. Um, we're not we're not going to judge you if it doesn't work the first time, right? We're going to say, it's okay, right. we're here, like try again. And there are people um, that, because of whatever circumstances, um, have never had anyone else in their life to provide that safety net, right? And so right. They, they, they come back, you know, they, they sometimes, you know, lose their footing. Um, and 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 they know and we talk about it a lot you know there's no pride there's no shame like we are here for you we are your safety net we are your You're, community we are your family um and and so folks come come back and so you never know what i what always surprises me is even somebody who maybe doesn't engage in like the whole thing right away like they're being touched and impacted in ways that are um are pretty transformational yeah i think that's really interesting because so much of the rhetoric around um criminal justice reform and uh, criminal justice issues uh in particular is you know zero tolerance we're just not going to put up with uh the uh this behavior but of course we know from substance abuse treatment literature that that's not the way recovery operates you know that people do uh, exactly. relapse they require often require more than one chance in order to make it through um, so I, I really appreciate the unconditionality of the support I mean just saying to people that if you're willing to try we're willing to try with you um, yes. And this program, you know, as Harriet just told the kind of founding story, but like all along over the past um, dec few decades, like it's never been developed in a silo. It's never been developed like right. in, in ivory towers. It's been developed in partnership with the folks that we serve and the people that yeah. come our program, the people that graduate from our program and the people that that work um, work at the Dauphin who've experienced homelessness and histories of incarceration and histories of substance abuse. And, yeah, and so, you know, it's not, it's done with those voices. Like we, we, we have before, before it was like, um, you know, common to use the, the terminology about like community engagement and elevating community voices. 
that's what the Dauphin has always been doing. And that's how the program was built. Yeah. Also, at graduation, one of the things we've always done is told the men, if you hit a bump in the road, you are part of a family and you have to come back to deal with the bump. Um, We've also been, like the punishment for getting high and are testing you is not to throw you out of the program, but rather to not allow you to work Hmm. until you're clean. Hmm. So, the most powerful thing for the poorest people is paid work, to get paid, to have money, to be able to do all of that. We stop paying people if they don't, if they use drugs. But we don't say goodbye forever. Because human beings are human beings. And you know if you're if your child at any age messes up, you have them come home again and get fixed up. What I would, so they can Yeah, I would just say also like what what's happening is when people are going through the programs, they're you know, as Harriet's talking about, like, we, the Dauphin, will be there for them. They become people who are there for the Dauphin yes. and there for their family members and there for the community um, where they work, where they serve. There, You know, and, and one really tangible um, example of this that I just love, and it, it encapsulates a lot of um, a lot of this there. I won't I won't I won't name names, but. There is um, somebody who my just my uh, offshoot. My personal story is I worked with the Dauphin from 2000 to 2011, um, running and managing and and growing and developing programs, the Ready, Willing, and Able program in particular, beside Harriet and George um, and and many others. Uh, and then I left for about over a decade and just returned back six months ago um, as Harriet became president emeritus. And I'm now president and CEO. And so there was somebody here when I returned six months ago who um, I knew because he had been in the program and graduated and had worked for us back in the early 2000s. He was back here now. I ran into him, was so happy to see him, whatever. A month into my, um, my, my tenure here, I get a note from one of our donors and it says, you know, on... June 16th at 3.30 p.m. on this street corner, one of your iconic men in blue helped me when I fell um, fell and was bleeding and bruised and everyone else walked by and he had a towel in his back pocket and he sat with me while I waited for an ambulance. Um, please tell him I say thank you and here's a donation in his honor. Um, we ended up figuring out using the supervisor and everything who that person was. It was this graduate from many years ago who was back in the program for a little while getting some support. Um, We got them together. They had lunch and shared their story and everything. 
Um, and and this this guy has since now moved back out. He has his own housing. He he messages me a lot, and he told me the other day that he and this woman see each other once a week now. Um, so they form this relationship. Oh. And so it's not only about like what the dope fund does for folks, but it's what everybody who goes through it can. Yeah. They become people who lift up others in the community, um, and so it's a it's a win win win. You know, obviously it's a the dope fund, um, and, and this program is a win for the people who go through it, but it is a win for the employers who hire amazingly dedicated, hardworking, loyal, well trained employees. And it's a win for the family members that they get reunited with. And it's a win for the community as a whole, because all of us are better when one of us is better. Well, that, that also, <clears throat> go ahead. I'm sorry. Also, early, even early on, when we didn't have much in the way of resources at all, we started this from our kitchen table, literally, with no money. Um, our people were so wonderful. They helped people across the street in the snow, older people. They carried people's groceries, usually older women. Um, they dug out the crosswalks in the snow, in the, all of those things. And people used to ask, they have how did they get these great manners you must teach them you know we never taught a manner in our life when people feel good about themselves they want to do good things they feel empowered and enhanced and that they're helping others and that was one of the things we went Wow, it matters. No, this is obviously innate in people. Mm. So that's always been a a reminder of humanity. Yeah. Well, like I said, people need to know that they're worthy of being loved, and once they know that, they you know, that that's kind of a positive reinforcement cycle, right? You know, yeah. you get respect, you give respect, you get respect, you give it, you start to understand this mutuality that you both have been talking about uh, as, you know, this is this is what it means to be human, um, is to be embedded in these networks and communities and to have a sense of both obligation and uh, a, a knowledge that you've got um, a community around you that's going to help you if you if you're having trouble. Yes. So let me ask um, just thinking about a couple of the more recent challenges um, that we've faced as a country and everything that happens in America happens 10 times as much in New York. Uh, what um, it, Talk a little bit about first about COVID uh, and how that affected your program, your operations. And then, um, of course, most recently what's been in the headlines is the surge in um, homelessness and largely driven by uh, 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 undocumented um, yes. um, immigrants into the United States. How that how that how have those things um, impacted your your work 
You want me to take it? How are you? you yeah, I mean, I can talk about COVID and you can, you know. Great. Start with can... COVID and then I'll add, I'll add in. Okay. So with COVID, our staff had to work because what we do is a lot of it one-on-one. Also, they had to work in the communities. Of course, they all wore masks. Um, they continued to do their work. And, but outside, people were not working so much. And unemployment, obviously, was getting high. I think it it is affected some of the homeless people we want to help now. Um, There's this kind of tendency for work to not be as almost common, particularly among the poorest people. So... I think we have to get people back into yeah. the concept of this. Bigger than homeless people, generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I would say also is, um, you know, obviously when you are an organization, uh, a direct services organization that has more than 2,000 people in your care on any given night, you know, between all of our different sites, um, during COVID, especially, you know, March of 2020 and those first initial months, it was all about like making sure you kept people as safe as could be following protocols. You know, then you walk, then you moved into um, getting people vaccinated. And so definitely, um, and also in those first months, none of ours, um, none of our recruitment staff could go into the other shelters. Everything was kind of hunkered down and in their place. So so there's a lot of kind of, obviously, the country, uh, the state, the city, everybody's still in a little bit of recovery mode. Um, but I think direct service organizations like the Doe Fund, um, you know, are, are very much in that. So when, when things were happening and you were worrying about keeping people safe and alive, um, some of the kind of staples of the program um, were less emphasized um, and, and as well as recruitment. So definitely COVID put a damper on that and we are rebuilding um, in many ways now and thinking about like, what is the future of work, right? Mm. What are the essential skills that are necessary in 2023? And how do we make sure we're integrating those into our programs and those kind of, whether it's skilled trades or um, or other things, how do we integrate all that into our program to make sure that the people that we're serving are prepared for the economy as it exists in this post-COVID? Right. Um, and then I think you all you you know you also mentioned the the big headline that um, that has been in New York City recently with the asylum seekers and the increasing of um, of the immigrant population here, and and so obviously that has some level of impact. But I, I really feel that like in this 
and it's related to COVID. In this post-COVID economy, um, there are still many, many more vacancies um, than there are people looking for work, right? And so I look at it as our job is for the people we serve to make sure that their skills um, match the skills of all the people that are hiring, right? So like it's keeping up and following like labor market trends and saying like, okay, this is where the labor market's going. These are the essential skills that are needed, essential both meaning the hard skills and the customer service skills and the work ethic skills and all that that are going to be needed. This is who's coming into our program. This is their capabilities. This is their interest. This is their passion. Um, and then aligning both of those things so that as we develop more advanced um, training options that we're keeping in mind both the customers that we're serving like the customers coming into our program and then the other customers were dual customers in, way, in many ways the employers that we work with and want to provide you know labor with and i i don't i don't see that as in any way shape or form um changing based on kind of the the changing face because it's always on us to be c considering who is coming through and what skills they need us to help them gain yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely uh, key, key in all of this is, you know, that yeah. we're in this environment with such low unemployment rates. It really does afford a, an opportunity for people who from disadvantaged backgrounds to gain yes. access to the work uh, to, to jobs and employment and careers. Uh, you know, it, we go through this about every 10 years or so um, where there's a sudden tightening in the labor market and all of a sudden people are willing to give um, uh, candidates a chance that might not otherwise. I be. was just going to say that when we first, maybe five, six years ago, there was an increasing need for higher skilled people in the trades because that whole huge group of people were retired. Mm -hmm. And then there was this big need. Can you weld? Can you fix air conditioners? Can you do all the things we had a lot of people able to do but they're not available anymore. Mm. And that changed pretty profoundly the dynamic. People that employers would not, might consider before, if they were trained, they would consider them now. Whether that's based on the color of their skin or having been incarcerated, but, you know, did their time and then did this and demonstrated their hard work. I think that's really what's created much more opportunity. It's just an aging out mm -hmm. of a group. Um, and also, who doesn't want to make a better living? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, 
I, I can't really express how uh, how much I appreciate the work that you're doing uh, and the people that are receiving this help are, you know, as you said, uh, they are human beings and we have we have a duty to one another to ensure that everybody has a chance to live this life of dignity and work is such an important aspect of that. It is very hard to have self-respect and dignity if you don't have a way of expressing yourself in the labor market. So I want to thank you and and the Doe Fund and all the people who have supported you over the years for giving us this example of um, of building a community where um, people who, you know, they the, the cover of the book can look a little rough. Uh, and um, and finding a way uh, for those people to be discovered and to join um, join in the rest of society. So again, I'm I'm just really appreciative, and um, I will be in New York in the not too distant future, and I would love to come by. And, well, we uh, would and, and we see. would love to have you. Um, yeah. And friends, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a shameless plug here for yes, you. Yes, please. Anybody else? Um, but we have uh, later this month on October 26th our um, Building Blue and Beyond annual gala. Um, Harriet, as president emeritus, is being honored and celebrated for her life's work. Um, and so we would love, love, love to have you there if you were in New York at the time. Um, and also all your listeners. You know, the Doe Fund. Um, is really a public-private partnership, and we have been able to accomplish all that we have been able to accomplish and touch the thousands of lives that we have touched because of not only the partnership we have um, with, with the, the folks in the city, but also with individual, foundation, corporate, um, generous, generous, generous partners who have sustained us over the years and allowed um, for us to allowed us the um, resources to be innovative and thoughtful um, right. and and responsive to the needs of the people that we serve. So October twenty sixth, building blue and beyond, Dauphin Gala. That sounds great, and I'm sure they can find all this information on your website, which is yes www.doe.org. <laughs> Very easy. Very easy. That's nine letters, and three of them are the same. So, uh, yes. Uh, okay, terrific. Thank you again for your time, and I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you. And we thank you for this opportunity. We really do. Yeah, it was great speaking with you, and appreciate all the work you do and how thoughtful you are about the populations that we work with and the future of work. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.